gets to determine what is culturally appropriate is the big issue here. Yeah, so I don't think we should think about it in terms of theft. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Alice Pung is one of Australia's most talented young writers. Uh, the author of Unpolished Gem, the edited collection Growing Up Asian in Australia, her father's daughter, Lorinda, My First Lesson, Writers on Writers, Alice Pung and uh, John Marsden, Close to Home, Selected Writings, and then four children books, Meet Marley, Marley's Business, Marley and the Goat, Marley Walks on the Moon. Uh, Alice also writes for uh, uh, non-fiction publications such as The Monthly uh, and has a, a part-time job uh, as, a, uh, as a lawyer at the Fair Work Commission when she's not looking after her kids. I have no idea how she manages to be so talented and so prolific, but I'm delighted to have her on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. It's a delight to be on this podcast today. So uh, let's start off at the uh, at the beginning. Uh, since he's such a feature of your writing, tell us about your dad. Oh, well, my dad is in his 70s. He's still working. He works at his better electrical store in Footscray. And he came to Australia in 1980. So he came as a refugee after surviving Pol Pot's killing fields in Cambodia. He, he saw horrendous things in Cambodia and... Uh, so much of um, her father's daughter is about how somebody who has experienced such tragedy and seen so many people die uh, then assimilates into a, a country where uh, th things are things are safe and clean and and plentiful. Plentiful. How do you how do you think he made that uh, that tra that transition? Uh, because what you describe in her father's daughter is is not just the the extent of the brutality, but the the capriciousness of it, the way in which Pol Pot's regime killed for for no no clear reason whatsoever. Oh, I think to be honest, my father survived the killing fields just by luck, as you know, people in genocides and Holocaust survive sometimes by being clever and often by being lucky. So for my father, it was a combination of both. But how he survived in Australia is a different matter because I have a lot of friends whose fathers um, were very scarred by the war, drank too much or couldn't um, function normally in life, you know, had a gambling addiction. They couldn't escape their demons. I think my father had this skill of cleaving his life into two so there was life before Australia and life after Australia and he named me because I'm the oldest Alice because he named me after Alice in Wonderland this Australia was going to be his Wonderland so growing up um, he he wasn't one to lament or one to tell sorrowful war stories like my grandmother and my mother were inclined to and he survived probably the worst of it he told funny stories actually about his experiences which I never appreciated as a teenager. You know, I think once he told my best friend, Bianca, that he ate a belt 
And I sat there thinking, Dad, he can't even speak English properly. No one eats a belt. He probably ate a belt of licorice that morning. <laughs> but he did. He ate his, um, his leather belt. And he said when it expanded in his stomach, he felt full and he could work. Because if you couldn't work, you were executed. And I think that afternoon when I walked my friend home, I begged her not to tell anyone at school because her eyes lit up and she said this is the stuff that show and tells are made of you know I just can't wait to tell the other kids and the reason I said that was because the other kids had been oh sorry that's my baby Celeste the other kids had been teasing us about eating all sorts of animals anything with its back facing the sky we were accused of eating you know dogs and cats and family pets so I didn't want anyone to know that my dad ate a belt because it would be more ammunition but I've grown to appreciate his stories as I've got older. And you remark in the book the uh, way in which certain things still set him off. Uh, the, uh, the fear of death from plastic bags because he'd seen people killed by having a plastic bag put over their head. Uh, and then blunting knives because of a fear of uh, what a knife could do to someone. Uh, it must be such a transition to come from a context in which you've seen life ended so freely uh, and then to see people walking around without a care in the world yeah I think it was it was a huge transition but it was a great one <laughs> he yes. thought he'd arrived in paradise my father still blunts knives and he still um he's brought himself a house in a very safe cul-de-sac you know on a hill the safest place you could exist but I found it interesting as he's got older he's become more uh you know, maybe many old people are like this, less inclined to go out and more afraid of the world, maybe, or what the world's become. But interestingly enough, last year, he and my mother thrived uh, during the pandemic because they were safe in their house and they didn't have to go to work. And they had this context where worse things had happened to them, of course. So this was the best thing. The government will give you money to help you out. If you don't have a job, you can stay home and you just go to the supermarket. All your needs are met. <laughs> That's fascinating. And I love your uh, your story too about uh, when you thought about taking part in the 40-hour famine and your dad, who'd once been able to almost feel his backbone through the front of his stomach, uh, said that he would pay you to eat for 40 hours. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So anyone who handed him that you know, familiar orange sponsorship book, my father would say, look, if you break all the rules and eat. And of course, as kids, we, we thought that was um, a terrible thing to, and, to break the 40-hour famine. <laughs> and you're, uh, we've, we've got the wonderful Celeste joining us on the, uh, on the podcast today, um, which reminds me of uh, uh, another curious feature of your upbringing that um, you did more parenting of your siblings than uh, many uh, other other kids do in Australia. Um, how how did that shape you as a child, and and how does it shape you as a parent now, Alice? Oh, that's a great question. So I was as the oldest, and I think it happens in many immigrant households. Um, you're responsible for the younger ones. Just because my parents worked crazy hours, so my mother was an outworker in the back shed. She made jewellery and my dad was just beginning his business, his small appliance business. So as they did in Cambodia, they left the raising of the younger kids to the oldest child. I was a constantly anxious kid, um, you know, like 
like that great wise man Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, I had a lot of responsibility <laughs> as a kid, but I had absolutely no power. So you feel powerless and anxious all the time because anything could go wrong. And so when I had my first son, I was 34, and I was so worried that I'd be an anxious mum. But you know what, Andrew? It was a piece of cake because by then I was an adult and I had complete control over my life. And I thought, oh, wow, this is so much easier compared to when I did it when I was nine years old. So I was very lucky to um, go into motherhood this way. I've heard you say before, Alice, that uh, one of, as you got into being a writer, you looked back on your childhood diaries from the time at which you were looking after your younger siblings and you were surprised at the extent of, of vitriol there, the anger that you felt to, at having to, to, look, to look after your, uh, your, your siblings. Uh, did, is, clearly you've dropped, dropped that resentment, though, that, uh, that frustration at having to play a, an, an early maternal role hasn't, hasn't lingered in how you think about your, uh, your, your siblings or your family because you, you write about them so warmly. Oh, no, definitely. It's, it was, I, and even as a young kid, look, I was not the most enlightened kid. So when you write in your diary, it's with this wonderful perspective. It's with the immediacy of the moment because I didn't have the wisdom of experience. So in the immediacy of the moment, there's some funny passages, Andrew. I remember when my mother and father announced their latest pregnancy and one entry was, how dare they? They should have asked me first with the first underline so hard that it went through five pages. <laughs> now, I love I, as it. A, as a kid, was no way responsible for what my parents got up to recreationally. But, you know, I, I knew, oh, they're going to make me look after these kids. So I was so angry. And I don't deny any of that anger. Um, <laughs> if you force children upon children and all they want to do is play and all you're telling them, you're not praising them for looking after the younger kids. You're saying, don't shake a baby. Don't let that baby get too close to the heater. Don't do this, don't do that. It's unrewarding and it's frustrating and it's um, it's a dangerous job. You know? <laughs> so anyhow, I was very angry as a young person and then things changed when I got to travel overseas. So I traveled quite late in my life at the age of 27 and I went to China first and then when I was almost 30 I went to Cambodia and I saw what my parents were replicating I saw kids looking after much younger kids but they were looking after their kids not in isolation in ex-commission houses in Braybrook they were looking after the younger siblings en masse so you'd have lots of older siblings with lots of younger siblings in a big group of siblings you know so they could hang around their friends each person had the, the same um, situation whereas for me in the suburbs of Melbourne it was very isolated and isolating so that was the experience it wasn't wasn't a good one um some of the time and it was great other times as well so most great writers are uh, great readers before they uh, they start to put pen to paper um your favorite childhood author john marsden is somebody who you've written an entire book about so for those who are less familiar with his work what do you love about john marsden Oh, so this is the interesting contradiction about people who um, who think about teenagers, yes? Yeah? So in literature, we expect our teenagers to um, behave in certain ways or to, to um, almost they're infantilised. So, so what, what I mean is at school, 
they're reading things like King Lear, they're reading things like the slums of Charles Dickens, England, and yet there's a distinct category of book in Australia called YA, where you're not allowed to deal with certain subjects because your book sales plummet, teen pregnancy is one, suicide, and you're not allowed to deal with certain subjects, um, for example, drugs, unless it's didactic, you know, there's a good message at the end of it, mm. and yet the teen I knew when encountered um, were fully fledged adults. Well, for example, John Marston was accused of uh, presenting war to kids at a very early age. But me and my friends read his books, and a lot of my friends had survived war. So those books were completely authentic <laughs> and reflective of real life experience. So, how do you go about? Uh... Uh, think, thinking about your your writing uh, in the uh, if you were if you're writing for young adults, do you think those books need to be grittier than what we'd find in the typical library? Um, not necessarily, because you can write a, a perfectly wonderful book about a teenager who has a comfortable middle class existence, and I find that interesting as well. As long as the book has momentum, it's you know well written. I don't think they necessarily have to be grittier. But if they are grittier, they have to be authentic. They can't be an adult looking down on a young person's perspective and imparting this great life lesson. <laughs> I think books are more to open up questions than to give you answers. And teenagers are savvy. They're, they're just going to fling away a book that is preaching to them. So, yeah, that, that's how I feel about grit. <laughs> You, uh, as a writer, you're somewhat unusual in being part time, uh, having a having work as a as a lawyer and on the side. Uh, does is that something that you need to do by necessity, or is there is that a, an active choice? Oh, um, it's a little of both, to be honest, Andrew. By necessity, just for my own mental health, you know, <laughs> I. I think um, if I was a full-time writer and I've tried it for two weeks and it didn't work out, uh, you can't. I just can't sit there and write for eight hours straight. Most of my stories are derived from life, so I've got to be living life. And also if I depend on all my income from my books, in Australia, as you know, your level of fame doesn't correspond with how much you earn as a writer. I think it would make me quite anxious. I'd worry about negative reviews because that might impact book sales. So I've always uh, had this other career that, uh, you know, <laughs> financially makes me be able to write what I want. And the other thing is sometimes I feel that writing is quite selfish because you spend years sequestered by yourself um, to produce this this one work. And that's, that's how I work anyhow. But when I go to work, I'm part of a team. It's not individual. So that's the other thing I like about work as well. Is there a risk then that you don't find time to write? Or do you have a, a discipline where there's a, a block of time every day? You know, if you read Paris Review, there's certain writers who say that they must put in, put in three hours of uninterrupted time from 7am. Do you have a routine of that like that? Do you have a number of words you aim for? Oh, no, Andrew, just because I've got, in, in five years, I had three children. So I've got three kids under six now. <laughs> and I, wow. yeah, there's, I don't have the luxury of having a block of uninterrupted time. Time is always interrupted. 
I'm lucky if I have half an hour uninterrupted time. It just means I have to work differently. So I do my writing by hand in notebooks scattered all over the house, you know, and then I try and piece them together at night when I can, if I'm not too tired. And it's changed my writing a bit. I've become more concise and uh, my sentences are shorter, for starters. <laughs> So what's the advantage of writing by hand? So, Because most people would think of it as kind of a bit inefficient to, uh, to, to have to then transcribe your own work. What, is, what, what extra does, does that give you to, to handwrite your work? Oh, I don't think of it as extra at all. And I think it's the most convenient and fastest way. Just because if I have to turn on my computer, unlock it, put it out of sleep, to put on my Word document, that takes time. Um, and I don't have that much time. So I write it by hand. Sometimes I edit by hand and transcribing by computer isn't that big a deal to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see the words on the page as well when I write by hand. You started off writing memoir and you've moved uh, more into, uh, into, into novels. Um, how is that, how's it different to, uh, to write in those two styles and, and how's it different to edit the work in those two styles? Oh, well, I always think of um, non-fiction especially narrative non-fiction, is you have to make it sound like fiction so that it's engaging, you know, you're not writing a history essay. So the hardest part is trying to make your memoir or your non-fiction read as if it could be, you know, it could be fiction, it could be completely made up. And it's the inverse with writing fiction because I write realist fiction. So I've got to make sure my fiction uh, sounds real enough that these things could... Um, foreseeably happen to my characters so that that's how I work tell me more about that so you you're I thought you were going to say that uh, that somehow the the memoir words were more precious because they were uh being drawn from a finite source exactly they are. Uh, and, and uh but um but your your main concern seems to be that the fiction words uh, don't have the guarantee of authenticity than the than the the nonfiction words do. Oh yeah, that that's I guess because I I don't write nonfiction books. Uh, I've stopped that for a while to concentrate on fiction. So my my preoccupation with fiction is how do I make this sound like these are real human beings who are living out their lives and not just um, characters who are comprised of. A collection of quirks because I see that a lot you know people think oh you build a character by giving them personality and a, a bunch of traits but that's that's not how you that's not how I do it anyhow yes yeah, so I start off with what what is character and then what is story they're my two questions when I begin a novel do you feel you sort of have to to live with your with with your characters Oh, somewhat. They're pretty close to home, to be honest. And I like living with the characters for a number of years. It's a bit sad when you finish a book and you think, oh, that's, that's my journey with this character, with Lucy or with Karuna, because <laughs> you've lived with them for, for four years. They have occupied a space rent-free in my mind for that long, and now they're leaving. <laughs> uh and uh, in, in terms of how you think about your your writings, I mean, you're one of the the leading uh, Asian Australian voices uh, in in both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and when I was um, 
Uh, when I was thinking about you, that, that seminal book that, that so many people have read and refer to, Growing Up Asian in Australia, uh, I was reminded of, there's a line from the James Bond movie, um, You Only Live Twice, where Sean Connery uh, dismissively says to someone who's challenging his linguistic abilities, oh, I studied Oriental languages at Cambridge. Um, and, and, and this idea that, of course, is kind of farcical. Um, but I'm wondering, similarly, is it... Is it um, a bit of a stretch to think about a single Asian experience in Australia? Yeah, there is no, no single Asian experience because Asian Australians have been here since the 1850s and earlier. I think it's the 1830s that the first Asian Australian person came here. So there is no singular experience. That's what I find baffling, Andrew, is we try and pin these things down when you, um, you know, and, and sometimes people say, oh, but there's already been a book about um, a Malaysian Chinese or a Vietnamese Australian. But we never say that about mainstream books. We don't say, oh, wait, but there's already been a book about a teenager whose mother dies or this or that. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there, there's such a diversity of experience that a mainstream, perhaps white Australian can have that an Asian Australian might not be able to have or might, you know, in, in the past, it, that wasn't marketable, the ordinariness of our lives. How do you think the, uh, the experiences of some of the groups that, you talk, talk, that um, your writers talk about in Growing Up Asian in Australia have changed since the book came out? Do you feel as though the extent of, anti, uh, of, of race, racism in Australia has, has declined or... Is there a sense in which, you know, particularly for Chinese Australians, it's gotten worse? Oh, it, it ebbs and flows, Andrew. Uh, things have got better for, for me, of course, because I don't have an accent. You know, I'm a middle-class professional. So the irony is that the people who used to yell at us and tell us to stop stealing jobs sometimes need my advice as an employment lawyer, and they don't see me. At that point, they don't see me as an Asian. They're appreciative and grateful for help. <laughs> and I understand that demographic because I grew up among them, just, you know, poor, poor working class Australians who felt very threatened um, in their livelihoods by global forces they couldn't change. And it, things are hard for a specific group of Asian Australians now, there will always be a specific group. For now, it's the Burmese because they're the latest arrival. It's the Chinese because they seem to have brought in coronavirus. Yeah, and it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? It does. And, and one of the things I really admire about your writing about race is the way in which class runs right through it. Uh, so you're, you're very conscious about the, uh, uh, the, the distinction between those who are working as doctors and lawyers and, and people who are um, stacking shelves in, in small, uh, small suburban grocery stores. Uh, and thinking about how that experience is, is almost you know, entirely different. Yeah, that's true, Andrew. But it's not um, its not confined to people who have come here recently. So it's not confined to Asian Australians and Muslim Australians. I think Anglo-Australians have been here generations. Class is one of the biggest impactors on how they deal with newer members of the community. So Christos Tiokas always says, you know, these people in Fitzroy have the luxury of having kind and open hearts and accepting refugees and volunteering at the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre. 
But when those refugees arrive like us, we're put in the far-flung suburbs or the working-class suburbs so that those bogan Australians that the inner city people so look down upon, all oh, those racist bogans, you know, <laughs> they're the ones who put up with us. They're the ones who have to have us as their neighbours and they're the ones who have to try and help assimilate us on a day-to-day -day level. And I have a lot of respect and even deep love for some of these people one of whom was my best friend's father who supported One Nation. He, he had posters of Pauline on his wall, but he loved us um, unreservedly. So I've never believed that people were their politics. So a lot of that uh, flows through in your uh, your latest novel, 100 Days, which has uh, just hit the shelves. Uh, your the, the main character, Karuna, uh, experiences people shouting abuse from the from the car at her as she as she walks down the street is that is that something that you experienced as a as a child growing up in the west of melbourne oh yeah yeah so once a car followed us and you know the window got wound down and these teenage hoons just yelled at my mum to go home and stop stealing their jobs but i didn't understand because i was eight i thought what what jobs well my mum works in the garage and we're going home we're like 30 seconds from our front doorstep I didn't understand politics at that time. But as a teenager, um, I did have a carload of hoons who were probably my dad's age. You know, they, they followed me home and they yelled out a line from that movie, Full Metal Jacket, me love you long time. And they kept yelling that out till I went to a neighbor's house and pretended it was my own. So those encounters in my novel are actually <laughs> derived from real life, yeah. What an awful experience to be going through. Um, your uh, the the novel is is also about confinement. Uh, the, uh, the the main character spends a hundred days uh, in inside a, a small hot uh, housing commission flat, uh, and it it's is sort of a uh, kind of anticipating COVID, but uh, but I presume you, you wrote it before COVID came along? Oh, I definitely did, Andrew. Even the setting, the Housing Commission flat was thought of four years before COVID. So it's funny how truth mirrors fiction in this instance. Yeah. What was it like to be editing the book during lockdown? Oh, you know, my heart just dropped. I thought, oh, no, people are going to think I wrote a pandemic book in the space of a year, <laughs> which, which was not true. In the space of the year, I was um, growing another child and, and not, in the, the, not in the mind to create anything new. Um, so it, it was an interesting experience to see suddenly that these housing commission blocks were highlighted. And then uh, when this book, came out to early readers a lot of people said oh wow is this is this about last year is this about covid because of the housing commission flats i thought see we never write about class in literature that often because housing commission is normal for such a substantial part of australians and yet when they read that they linked my book to the housing commission flats because these were the only two instances of housing commission besides the parodies you see on you know television like houses and things like that so uh, th that was uh that was interesting and disheartening for me to know <laughs> yes I, it was um it was interesting for me to uh, to to be uh, rereading a lot of your, uh, your your work at the same time, and there's a there's a line from her father's daughter where 
you reflect to yourself that you've spent more time staring at a screen than in your life than you have with any other human being. Uh, and the fascinating absence from 100 Days is Screens. Uh, it's a book that's, that's so obviously produced in the pre-internet era because it's just replete with boredom uh, of this 16-year-old this 16, 16 girl who's either pregnant or just, just had a baby, um, unable to, uh, to, to, to think, think of what to, what to do. And it, it sort of it, it felt to me a bit like a time capsule, Alice, because no one again will uh, will, will go will go through that that, that experience. Uh, everyone who had that who was was locked away by their uh, uh, in, into an apartment these days would have a screen to surf on. That's so true. You're right. Yeah, even the people in the housing commission flats would have had at least a phone or something. <laughs> yeah, and I deliberately set my book in 1987 for that specific reason. The, the sense of boredom that sometimes we are, you know, I argue we, we need in our lives. I don't think um, we would, like, I think Hillary Clinton, when she came to Australia, said that we probably, um, it's rare to get great statesmen these days because they don't have long train journeys like Abraham Lincoln did to just reflect and think and write a Gettysburg Address, which was only 400 words, but he had hours and hours to think about that we don't have that luxury we have sound bites now so I wanted this 16 year old girl to experience the full spectrum of boredom and I wanted her not to have technology so that it would exacerbate her sense of isolation being pregnant at that time she just couldn't google help you, know? you just had no idea I love that idea of boredom being a uh, spark for creativity. Do you find yourself um, consciously holding back from technology or making rules for yourself around when you can access it in order to create that, that thinking space? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're just um, on technology all the time. You know, things like Facebook, which they call social media and a way to connect people. But Often it's social broadcasting because you're not really connected, are you? You're just broadcasting yourself. Um, there's no right of reply. There's no longer reflection that even an email offers. Email offers infinite space. So people, after email, I found, wrote longer letters. <laughs> My friends wrote me longer emails than handwritten letters. And that's, that's a positive about email. So I do switch off my phone and switch off the internet when I try and write and um, it, yeah it, it just helps clear the mind as well. There's um, uh, a nice line from Robert Putnam where he said uh, the question at the outset of the uh, the internet age was whether the new technology would be more like a souped up tele television or a souped up telephone uh, and I remember talking to Bob a couple of years back and he was saying well we've sorted that one that one out Definitely more like television than telephone. Uh, and running through the book, there's um, uh, Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman, uh, who uh, features as a quote at the start, and then uh, uh, I won't won't spoil the details, but uh, but Whitman is there all the way through. Why why Whitman? Oh, so I never formally studied poetry at school, Andrew except maybe a couple of poems, maybe Kenneth Slessor, the Australian poet, and Sylvia Plath, everyone does. So when I discovered um, Walt Whitman myself uh, as a young person, it was accidental, as most things are 
if you grow up in a certain demographic, you know, it, it was almost like um, a free books pile. And so that, that poetry made sense to me. I had no idea he, he had been writing in the 1800s. It seemed so contemporary. His sentences were disjointed, but that was the way my um, teenage hormonal mind seemed to work at that time. And something just clicked. Um, without wanting to be wanky about it, sometimes poetry comes accidentally to people. So, so Whitman was one, and because he was W, he was right next to the free book of Judith Wright, who was an Australian poet. So that that's why she's featured in there. But I remember coming across her poem about the glint of metal along the blade. You know, it was a punk of woman to man about childbirth. I'm like, oh, this is so visceral. This this has to be in there. So yeah, <laughs> that's why those two poets are in there. Yes, and it's it's funny how different experiences can be shaped by poems. Uh, so uh, with uh, weddings, I always think of Les Murray's uh, Wedding at Berico, uh, which has got these beautiful lines about uh, uh, the parents moving softly to the rear. Uh, and uh, I, I just, uh, I, that's, that's shaped how I think of every wedding ceremony. I can't... Um, I can't go along to a, to a wedding without without thinking of uh, of Les, Les Murray's poem, and it's it's just it's striking how his experience of a wedding, which of of, of people who I never knew and uh, a context I'll, I'll never know, still seemed to capture something beautifully universal about the experience of uh, of, of marriage. That's so uh, true, isn't it? Yeah. You uh, you have uh, a lovely sort of tension in one hundred days uh, between parental love and uh, and being too smothering um, I suppose it's it's sort of summed up for me by uh, uh, a, a, a story which I think also appears in an, another one of your earlier books uh, about a grandmother who uh, faced with a snotty nosed child places her mouth over the nose uh, sucks the mucus out and then then spits it spits it away um, how do you uh, how do you think about that uh, that that t that tension between uh, um, a mother's a mother's love and her overprotectiveness? Oh, it's it's a hard one to straddle, isn't it, Andrew? And if you don't do it um, in a sensitive way, you could burden your child with a lifetime of guilt. Hey, <laughs> you know the the uh, stereotypical joke about the overbearing Jewish mother. Here, I just have a very um, harassed, overworked, overtired single mother whose only mode of communication to her daughter is to is to lecture or to criticise because that, that instantly gets things done and she wasn't taught any better. That's probably how her overworked and overstressed mother in the Philippines communicated with her. And that's exactly the relationship my mother had with her own mother. So her mother had 10 kids and just sold boiled eggs in the new market in Cambodia. So whenever she uh, had an interaction with a kid, it was to yell at them or to tell them to do something. <laughs> and of course, you know, my mother raised me in a, in a similar way. She was always very busy. We knew she loved us by the things she did for us and not in the things she said. And yet as a teenager, some of the things she said could be quite hurtful. Because you go to school in Australia and you're taught that you have individual rights and if someone calls you a son of a whore or whatever, that's emotional abuse. But culturally, um, that's, that's what working class parents call their kids. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
How's that shaped you as a parent? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. That, that's a great question. I have, um, I, I'm conscious of when I'm trying to control my kids because when they're born, you realise that they're just complete uh, strangers and human beings unto themselves. And the strangeness about them is the beautiful thing. They're not extensions of you. They're just themselves. And when I feel like I'm trying to control my kid, for example, trying to get him to wear a certain pair of pants that, you know, will keep him warmer than a thin pair of leggings, <laughs> I realise that the coerciveness of even because he's so small, you're, you're forcing them on him. And one of my very good friends once said to me, she said, oh, parents, parents can parent their kids however they want. But you've just got to be aware that in, you know, 15 years time, that child, will, if you've done the right job, be bigger than you, be stronger than you and be smarter than you. So if you use control as a means of parenting them, um, who knows what will happen when they're better than you <laughs> and they're more powerful. And I find it uh, becomes harder the more kids you have. And so when we had one child, there was an ability to sort of take a bit of time and reason things out. Uh, with three now, there's just there's less space to say, well, you've got a perfectly reasonable point of view, but we're going to do it my way because, I, because I'm the parent. Um, I feel like with each, uh, with each new child, our household became a little bit less democratic in its parenting. Oh, that's so true, Andrew, even with our household, yeah. <laughs> I understand completely, yeah. But if you add that with, um, you know, really stressed parents, I just remember the earlier days, my mum and dad were just constantly so stressed. They were always yelling at us. There's a big gap between me and my youngest sibling. And Arnold Sable, that wonderful Jewish-Australian writer, talks about two sisters uh, who had different parents they had biologically the same parents, but one was born 10 years after the Holocaust and one was born during that time. And the one born during that time said, oh, our parents were so awful to us. They yelled at us, you know, they're so mean to me. And the youngest one said, what do you mean? They were excellent parents. They were kind, they were caring, they were patient. And that's because the parents' circumstances changed. They lived yes. lives. And so I, I felt that, you know, sometimes we judge parents of a certain class, oh, they're so stupid, they put orange juice in their kids' you know, milk bottles or, or things like that without fully um, feeling empathy towards their circumstances. So I want to ask you about uh, the issue of cultural appropriation as uh, somebody who's a uh, Chinese, Cambodian, Australian who's written a book about a Filipino uh, teenage mum. Uh, this has been an issue which uh, has, has popped up increasingly recently. Um, Janine Cummins uh, was criticised for writing uh, American Dirt, uh, a book about uh, a Mexican mum who crosses into the United States because she's white rather than Latinx. Uh, and uh, many people will be familiar with Lionel Shriver's speech to the Brisbane Writers' Festival in 2016 where she told the story of uh, a... Uh, uh, at the University of East Anglia banning students from wearing sombreros on the basis that that was cultural appropriation from Mexico. Uh, and uh, Shriver 
regards this as uh, as, as appalling uh, and says our very our very role as writers is to try on other people's hats uh, and defends the the notion of of writers telling stories about ethnicities other than their own. Um, how do you feel about this very vexed and uh, high temperature topic? Oh yeah, it is a very vexed and very um, knee-jerk reaction that people have towards this idea of cultural appropriation, Andrew. Um, and a lot of people tie this in with the idea of cultural appropriation stealing from other cultures. I've never seen it that way. I, I think, um, I, I'm not sure you can steal ideas, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, you can steal I scientific ideas that have been patented, but creative ideas, I don't think anyone has a monopoly over them. And I am aware Lionel Shriver pressed a lot of wrong buttons when she made this speech, but I actually agree with her that as a novelist, you are free to explore whatever terrain you want. Now, this idea of cultural appropriation to me uh, is more about cultural appropriateness, eh? So who gets to decide what is culturally appropriate? And if you do it badly, then um, th there are dangers of doing that. So let's say, you know, uh, what Lionel Shriver did was not culturally appropriate, even though her speech was um, quite reasonable when I read it. She was trying to be provoc provocative. She wore sombreros. She's saying, look at me. I'm a very gifted and talented and world-famous author. And she, she is very gifted and I love her writing. Um, but she was using that to say, I, I can make fun of you guys, you know, <laughs> with no consequence. And with that, that's, um, that's concerning because certain writers have historically only been allowed to tell a certain certain tiny proportion of their story so the for mexicans maybe the immigrant experience crossing over the border blah 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 for me when i was first starting out you know <laughs> i don't think i could have started writing a book like her father's daughter i couldn't have written this new book which was you know a mother talking to her mixed race child that that didn't exist back then it wouldn't have been uh, marketable so times change and who gets to determine what is culturally appropriate is the big issue here I think not who gets to steal what and when <laughs> yeah so I don't think we should think about it in terms of theft I wonder today whether Thomas Keneally could have written The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith which is uh you know the story of an Aboriginal man told in told in first person. Um, that's you know now nearly nearly fifty fifty years old, but I think there'd be some some criticism of a white author who sought to write a a book entirely from the perspective of an Aboriginal person. Oh, that that's a fair point, Andrew. So that's where cultural appropriateness comes in. If he you know he might have had. Heaps of Indigenous friends, like Alex Miller, is very close to the Indigenous community. He sought their permission. Um, another writer, Claire Wright, oh, sorry, not Claire Wright, Claire Atkins wrote a beautiful book called Nona and Me with the consultation of the Indigenous community who were very happy with the way they were represented. Um, so that's culturally appropriate because that was done as a, as a, um, a homage to, to that culture. Even closer to home, 
my friend Nam Lee, who wrote The Boat about a decade ago, which was this international bestseller where he mm. took different perspectives. I'm not sure he would be allowed to publish that now or whether it would be marketable. Do you know what I mean? Which is such a pity because it's such a powerful book. Such a powerful book. So I've never believed that we should only write from our own experience because then I'd be stuck. That's it. I've just got two memoirs and that's all the writing I can produce in my life. Um, because you could go in the opposite direction and make writers write according to a very narrow and specific point of view, which we don't want. Where does cultural appropriateness go in terms of other identities? Um, I'm guessing you probably don't think about it in gender terms, that you wouldn't be uncomfortable about a man writing a, a novel from a woman's perspective or vice versa. Um, but maybe it does arise with uh, sexuality, with somebody writing a, uh, or even with somebody writing a book from a uh, different, um, as, a, as a transgender transgender perspective. Oh, I, yeah, there was a bit of trouble with that last year with John Boyle writing, um, he's gay, but he wrote from a transgender's perspective, a book about a young adult. So he wrote The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas which he said, I couldn't write that book today because I didn't survive the Holocaust. I'm a white, gay, British man. How dare I do this, the critics would say. And yet that was a very moving book and, um, and film for many people. I think the thing is, sometimes people do it terribly, hey? And it's so transparent, you know? <laughs> when you read a book where culture has been rendered in two-dimensional terms, you think, wow, this person is writing about a black American or a Jamaican slave. They have no black friends. It's all a bunch of cultural tropes and stereotypes um, wrapped into these characters. You kind of see it. It's pretty transparent. <laughs> the danger lies where that book becomes definitive because the author is so famous, you know, like Thomas Keneally or, or John Boyne, that any new voices are... I don't get a chance to emerge because the publishers might say, oh, but we've already had a book on the transgendered experience written by this person who can sell us 100,000 copies and you're, you're just a newcomer. What can you bring to the table? 5,000? No one yes, knows okay. who you are. So, yeah. so you're crowding, crowding out the, uh, the authentic voices in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah, just because you can write about a topic doesn't mean you can do it well and doesn't mean you need to <laughs> do it. Uh, Alice, uh, I first got, got, to, got to know you when you were living in Ormond College in the apartment next to my uh, dad there. Uh, uh, and uh, and they well of course uh, they uh, they loved having you as a as a neighbour there my mum when she visited and my uh, my my dad all the time um, but you've spent a lot of time in uh, in universities and kind of working with and mentoring uh, young writers uh, you must have a couple of kind of tips that you often give to young writers what what what's, what pieces of advice do you find yourself most commonly bestowing on people who want to make a career with a pen. Oh, that, that's a good question because I get asked that a lot. And my biggest tip uh, is, is one Aldous Huxley gave at the Writers' Festival and it's the Nike slogan. It's just to do it. I find a lot of people, not just young people, middle-aged ladies, you know, old, older gentlemen, always say, I've got a book in me and they want to talk about their book and they want to talk about the process of writing and they want to talk and talk. The time you take in talking is the time you should be sitting down and writing. You know, you can talk infinitely. Just do it. It's it's the Nike slogan, but it's worked for me. 
Um, and especially since I don't have that much time, I don't talk about books, I just do it. That's the only way to get writing. The more you talk about it, sometimes the more doubt you, you cast on your own self, the, the more doubt others might, you know, cast on you or, or they might dilute the purity of your ideas with other ideas they might have or um, make you feel insecure by saying, oh, I hate to tell you there's another book like that on the market, you know, <laughs> just stuff like that. So as a non-fiction writer, I've increasingly come to the view that uh, I should show my unpublished work to as many people as possible because they will only make it better. Uh, and the, uh, the the challenge with writing is not um, that people steal your ideas mostly, it's that people don't read your ideas. Um, but I wonder whether that's somehow less true with fiction. Is there a risk that uh, particularly new writers um, ask for comments too early and then find themselves being put off by the feedback? Oh, sure, Andrew. And sometimes, actually not sometimes, a lot of the time they ask for feedback from the wrong people. So mm. you, you have to, you know, <laughs> it's a rare skill to be an editor. I've been with mine for 20 years and our relationship is constantly developing and he's given me space to grow and to branch out into different directions. So if you're asking someone who loves you so much, your mom, your dad, your best friend, you're not going to get honest feedback. And if you're asking a group of students in your first year creative writing class who were taught that criticism is to be critical, then you're going to feel really disheartened. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to ask the right kind of person to read over your work. This is Chris Feek. You're talking about your uh, your editor. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember Robert Mann saying to me when I got to work with Chris that uh, he is just one of the great Australian treasures. And uh, my experience when I first got a manuscript back from him was every time he had changed a sentence, I thought to myself, yes, that is exactly what I was trying to say, but couldn't quite find the words for. Uh, the experience of going through Chris's track changes was, was unlike anything I've ever experienced as a, as a writer. Oh, he's so wonderful, isn't he, Andrew? He, you know, he discovered me at the age of 20 and he's just looked over every book I've done but he, he taught me an important thing we were at an editing conference together uh, almost seven years ago and he said he's a very modest guy he's I said how do you do it Chris you edit Simon Lays the late Simon Lays who mm. presented everything in handwriting in pencil and you edited you know other people Gen X's how do you do it and he said his first rule is the Hippocratic oath that doctors take is to do no harm. And that's exactly how he edits my manuscripts. He, he doesn't uh, put words in that you wouldn't put in. He says he just peels it back so the truth of the story can emerge. He's never rewritten whole passages for me. And I think he does it so well. Yes, I'm sure he has to do more work with my, my prose than yours, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, treat, a treat either way. Um, Alice, let me uh, wrap up with a handful of questions I ask all my guests. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, um, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I think I'd tell her that things get better and not to take life so seriously because it's not permanent. <laughs> you experienced a nervous breakdown during, uh, during your final exams, didn't you? Does that... Uh... Do, have you have you made a full recovery there or are there still certain triggers that you need to look out for? Um, I don't know. If, I mean, it happened when I was 17. Um, but, you know, about five, no, six years ago, my, my brother died. So he 
he lost his battle with depression and that that was um that shook me up well it shook me up immeasurably it's the the last thing i'd wish upon anyone so i'm i'm very conscious about taking or finding joy in small things where i can yeah when are you most happy oh when am i most happy oh when i've um you know when i'm fully engaged in my creative work when i have my kids and family around me and when i have something to look forward to I imagine the uh, first two of those are uh, mutually contradictory, that uh, it's d difficult to write with the family all around you. Um, it is, but you know what? It, they, they both coexist wonderfully because if I can't write and I spend time with my kids, it's not time wasted. And if I get sick of my kids and Nick look up, looks after them and I get time to write, it, that's not time wasted either. So, you know, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to have these two great loves. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, I try and get out every day, go for a walk, um, do spend time with, with our kids and, and with the family. And also, this is important, but try and get enough sleep because <laughs> that changes the course of a whole day. Yes, I find my sense of humour is the first thing to go if I uh, don't get a, enough sleep. Uh, it's just hard to uh, to to see the uh, the light in a in a dark situation if you're uh, too tired. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes, yes. I um, eat a lot of chocolate, as in more than probably your average person. I can sometimes I get through a kilo in a week. Wow, that is a good amount of chocolate. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't drink and I don't smoke. So I guess that that's um, a vice I can sustain. It's probably cheaper than alcohol and <laughs> other things. As a chocolate connoisseur, what's your uh, favourite kind? Oh, what's my favourite kind? <laughs> um, oh, I, I'm not a snob about chocolate, just as long as it doesn't taste like brown crayons, you know, the type I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finally, Alice, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, um, well, I, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful husband, Nick, who who is very quiet and very, uh, it's an old-fashioned word, but he's very stoic and steadfast. And so he's, he's uh, shaped my view of life because sometimes I... I get anxious about small things or, you know, sometimes I get stressed with the kids. But steadfastness was not a quality I had on my list when I was maybe, you know, 19 or 25 or 27 of things in a life partner. But I think that's one of the most important things. That's beautiful. Uh, Alice Pung, writer extraordinaire, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. Also, I wanted to ask you a favour. On the 6th of June, I'll be competing in the Cairns Ironman to raise money for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. To make a donation, just go to my Facebook or Twitter page to find the link. Thanks in advance. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.